The opinions expressed in the following are those of its participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the producers and the Six Talk Podcast Network. Also, the following contains mature material and mild language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Discretion is advised. This is the Anime Roundtable Canada on this Sunday evening, February 20th, 2022. You can contact us online on the web, animeroundtable.com, Twitter and Instagram at animeroundtable, and email animeroundtable at gmail.com. Well, here we go. Good evening from Toronto. Mike Nicholas, James Austin, Kevin Ng, Mohammed Shamarki, and Jeff Gregg with you. We got a full table tonight on this uh, long weekend. It is a long weekend here in Ontario. We'll go into that in a second. Once again, we decided to take yet another week off after stating we would start doing stuff on a weekly basis, silly us. But uh, increasingly with things going on with the pandemic, many of us are getting a life again. I guess that's a good thing. So let's do the update while we're at it. As stated just a couple seconds ago, it's a long weekend here in Ontario. Family day is designated for tomorrow i believe that's the what third monday of february it's it's one of those holidays and it's a provincial holiday that was instituted maybe because they wanted something in between the christmas holidays and easter which is a which potentially is a long slug and could lead to some maybe mental issues i guess well, I hope, I hope the four of you enjoy your day off tomorrow. Well, at least I can call Revenue Canada tomorrow. Or what do they call themselves? Uh, DRA. DRA, thank you. But uh, uh, the other provinces have their own variations. Some have a family day. Manitoba has Louis Riel Day. Just imagine if that was in the 18th century. They'd probably be looking at them oddly, but history's a funny thing. Well, yeah, well, that's another story altogether. And by the way... You know what they probably were thinking too, Mike? They were probably trying to match because remember in the U.S. some of them celebrate President's Day, right? Mm-hmm. So. And remember when uh, Martin Luther King Day happened initially, not all states recognized it. And that led to a bunch of things. I think um, the genesis of of certain aspects of cancel culture, if you want to call it that, may have happened due to that. But yeah, on the topic of Louis Riel, just for reference, and that's a very historical figure here in Canada, and maybe somewhat controversial, there was a great graphic novel based on his life that came out some years back. 
And uh, maybe we should put a link to that. But that was a. I think it was drawn in quarterly, right? I believe, and it was quite a good uh, graphic novel. I remember. Yeah, it was really well done. From what little I read of it, it because that really one good. I believe I borrowed from the library, and it was a nice one to read. Up Is on. that Essex Country? I don't know. That I sounds really like familiar. I... But I'm sure he's had more than one graphic novel about him. But I think maybe you're right, Kevin. You could be right, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, really interesting figure from our from our history. Uh, since we talk a lot about, or at least in Canada, there's been a lot of talk about of Indigenous rights. Louis Riel fits perfectly into that conversation, I think, with what happened concerning him. And it's not a pretty story. Especially with what happened to him eventually. Well, it's like the Coles notes, to be honest, is it's just like America, right? Where basically they were getting land and stuff like that. And Rupert's land, which used to be most of the West in Manitoba and stuff like that, used to be under uh, Hudson's Bay Company, the Bay. And then they sold it to uh, the government of Canada in the uh, 18th century. And then they started going, obviously, westward. And then that obviously caused. Uh, consternation between many uh, groups of people like the Métis, the Indigenous and all that stuff and Louis Riel was one of the Métis leaders and they obviously tried one track and then they had to take a more aggressive uh, stance and there were actual battles and stuff like that uh, between them and the Canadian uh, federal government because the feds wanted the railway, remember? They said the railway from uh, Atlanta to Pacific is going to unite our country so on and so forth and who knows uh, how true that is but that is what they wanted and they forced their way through and unfortunately for Louis Riel he unfortunately uh, they captured him and at that time given the government of Sir John A. Macdonald they uh, charged him with treason and basically uh, hung him and obviously they did not take too kindly to him and you could probably see that in the history books as it went but obviously over time things change and a new set of eyes can look at in a different uh, thing. And as they say, one man's terrorist is now one man's freedom fighter. So you never know how history is going to change and stuff like that. And how we can look back in a more perspective, right? Through our eyes and then him being celebrated uh, in that light to remind us of how to be better going forward, right? Yeah. And to s- just a quick follow-up, Louis Riel has since been pardoned as well Mm -hmm. so there's a thought there well uh, on the topic of well the government or hbc which way do you want to go oh let's let's go with the government since we're on the covid stuff oh just by the way uh it was louis riel is that graphic novels by chester brown yeah, I thought it was Chester Brown. That's why yeah. I wasn't sure. That was the one I was thinking of, Kevin. So. I was thinking of the Jeff Lemire graphic novel, which is not related at all. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Je- Jeff, Lemire, Jeff Lemire has um, written with Gord Downey, uh, The Secret Path, which is about residential schools. So it's, you know, he has tackled that subject <laughs> before. Yeah, no. So, I, I, oh, I didn't know that was a collab with him. Okay. I do know that but graphic it, novel, yes. Yep, there's a whole oh. album that goes with it. They made kind of an animatic animation uh, for it that w- was free on some Canada-sponsored website. 
um, at least a few years ago. I've I've used it in classes before. Mm. Okay. I've seen it at the public library. All right. Well, as as I said, so it's a bunch of things. Tomorrow is a hall is a provincial holiday in much of the country, and it could be called different things depending where you are in Canada, or it may not be anything. It's also President's Day for our uh, brethren down south. Ah, well, uh, and also a reminder too that Canada is it can be very American in some respects, and depending on who you talk to, that's good or bad. And I think we, and maybe transitioning a little bit and still keeping up with the COVID update. Yeah, we had Ottawa over the last couple weeks. Ottawa. Wait, what happened in Ottawa? Uh, a bunch of things. Politicians gather there. Uh, most sometimes they talk to each other. Sometimes they yell. Oh, sick! Are they going to pass some like laws and stuff, or what? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they'll have the chance now that it's probably uh, wide open. Ah. <sighs> How much do you want to say about this? <laughs> I don't think I, there, I, I don't think there's much to, there's not much really to say, uh, Mike. It, it was uh, the Ottawa portion of it was uh, a clusterfuck. The blockade at Windsor, and then they also actually before that one they had a blockade in Alberta. That was a clusterfuck at the United States border. Yeah, and uh, it's like they needed to get a handle of it before just like they were doing in toronto and stuff like that and even in uh, ottawa the chief of police his had rolled on this one he got uh, fired and he was actually running for the toronto job remember way Wait, back when didn't he, didn't he retire he he he, he quit no yeah he I like after after he didn't get the job he uh, yeah he resigned and then he went into private sector and then he got the ottawa job but uh supposedly this week yeah, the all of this. and then after he's forced out, now we see them move in, and so you hear different uh, discussions about, well, if it was a different protest or a different group of people, would they move in? It's there's a lot of woulda, shoulda, couldas, but who knows? Realistically, hey, guys, like, real. This is, this is, this is, we're gonna like this is gonna be one of those like to make people who were in this protest or who look at this protest will draw, want to draw parallels to the January 6th stuff. I don't think there's anything there. I think that's bullshit. That's just nonsense. Like, I think there's a lot of different factors, different people in that protest. Some of them we definitely do not want in our country to say the least, but Hey, they're in our country. What can you do? But that said, we have to like, Yes, you have a right to protest. Yes, you have a freedom of speech and stuff like that. But as we always say, there's a limit to that. You just can't do it all the time and stuff like that. It isn't something that you can go on forever and ever. At some point, you have to say you've made your point and get the you-know-what out. You know what I mean? And so if they didn't, then someone's going to have to go and put forward some of the And some of those laws I know have been used in other areas uh, not so nicely as we know with uh, trespassing with other things noise laws and things like that but that's how some of them are being thrown out right other than mm-hmm. the emergency law that obviously was passed and it, 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 it's funny because Justin Trudeau put out the emergency act and his father right Pierre father did the war measures act which was the thing before 
but the emergencies one was the one they basically did after because they said, hey, this has too much power and stuff like that. But there is still a lot of power in this one because it wasn't about the people on the ground. And even the federal politicians said that and Krista Freeland said that it was about the money. It was about the freedom to go after the bank accounts and stuff like that and go after those. Where was the GoFundMe money going? It was going after those accounts and freezing them. It, yeah. it's, and, it's, and, it, and crypto is now involved in that too. It seemed kind of odd that like they would both go after the money and forcibly clear the encampment basically, right? Because they, they just want to show them either or, like they need to do both. They decided to do both, yeah. Yeah, and they then, were yeah. doing both. And then there yeah. were other things too, like what do you do with all those trucks? Because a lot of the people in the towing community didn't want to go in there to a volatile situation and tow the trucks. Now they're going to go in there and tow the trucks, but where are they sending them? Because I think the mayor of Ottawa and a few people were saying, we should just seize their trucks and then auction them off to pay for all the policing services. So who knows how that would play? I mean, could, we're going to dissect this for a while. Uh, Mo, last thought. Give me a last thought. I, I mean, know we don't that, it, it's, it's just like, I mean, I don't know. That, that seems a little harsh, right? Auctioning off their trucks and so forth. I I just want to say, if this was not a group of mostly white people, this would have been cleared out in week one. Like, 100%. And that, that's part of the... <laughs> that's what I was going to say. That's what I said. There's a lot of people. They would, they would not have that. made it to day three if if not, it wasn't yes, a majority white week, protest. Forget week four, right? <laughs> forget week four. We just talked in the last ten minutes about Louis Riel who was one of those key figures in indigenous rights in, in Canadian history. And in Métis rights uh, as well, stuff like that. Because I know some right. of them do make uh, distinctions, stuff like that. So. Fair enough, which is fair. Uh, I apologize uh, for not if I didn't make that clear. If indigenous groups, Black Lives Matter, I, I tend to agree with that thinking. If, if we were seeing something like this, Forget three weeks. Three days would have been it would have been impressive. Anyway, the thing I still don't understand, Mike, is they knew the trucks were coming to Ottawa. Why the heck didn't they block the streets or do whatever, just not let them in? It just boggles That's the mind. Well, like, as I said, there's going to be a lot of dissection over the next couple weeks. Uh, James, finish your thought, and then I'll, I'll let Mo give a thought. No, that that was about it, and it's. Unfortunate that uh, we have so many different, and it's definitely bubbled with COVID, right? That you think you know certain people, and then different people have many different uh, viewpoints that come to the surface and stuff like that. And you have to make that decision of saying many people have lost friends and things like that. But they have to understand that we all want to move forward. We are going to move forward. But Life is hard. You just have to work through it one step at a time, all of us together. And it doesn't help when you start protesting certain things that are meant to actually help us and stuff like that. And freedom isn't free, as they say, right? And if, you're putting, and if you're putting that on your bumper sticker, you're putting that on your protest, I have some concerns about your movement, to say the least. Well, we just remember... Uh kind of unrelated, as a famous superhero once said almost 20 years ago, with great power 
comes great responsibility. Mo, you're saying Uncle Ben was the superhero? He was Spider-Man? <laughs> <laughs> in many respects, he was. Okay, I, well done. Mo, do you have a thought? You, you looked like you wanted to say something. I mean, I just want to say that it's not like a one-to-one this protest versus other protests in the back in in the, in the past I, I, it's it's like should it have lasted as long as it lasted i mean obviously not i feel like these guys are protesting a moot point in these restrictions like this stuff's gonna come to an end it's like it's like it's like we had the super bowl last sunday but then a bunch of people got really upset that there's no more football until like september so they like protested it for like seven months being like i want my football back and they finally <laughs> got their football back and it's like well i win right just come on, guys. Just chill out. Well, what about the XFL, Bo? Is it the Rock going to bring that to them? They don't want to watch the XFL or the US, or more like the USFL. But you, you, you do bring up an interesting point, and that's the other part of this update. As over the last couple weeks, and it's going to continue. The various restrictions that have appeared over the almost two years of the pandemic. Well, let's face it. Let's just round up two years of the pandemic. Have slowly started to lift. So a lot of public spaces have been allowed to go back to full capacity, at least in Ontario, including movie theaters, which are including movie theaters, which we'll get to in a second. March 1st, at least once again in Ontario, vaccine, the vaccine passport system, the proof of vaccination system, as it's formally called, will be lifted in Ontario. And it's been lifted in other parts of the country already or will happen before March 1st. I think Saskatchewan and Alberta. What a surprise. So, in many respects, we're seeing this happen, but I don't think any protesters should give themselves that much credit. This is just time. This is just the way time has gone, like a lot of things in this pandemic. Once again, though, Packed house, or half-packed house, at least for to see the Leafs suck last night against the uh, St. Louis Blues. But at least packed houses for movie theaters. Kevin, Mo, you went to see a couple movies over the last week, haven't you? Either of you want to say something about what you went to see? Although, let's keep it. I know Jeff wants to see something soon, and let's keep it short. Kevin? I did not go see Dune again. I... I actually was intending, well, I guess I I wanted to go see it yet today, and then I forgot. Sorry, Mo. Uh, uh, it, it's all good, man. It was, it, was, uh, it was a very full, like almost obscenely full screen. Really? Oh, man. You went, okay, so how you long went to go that, see Do you know how long that's running for? It's, it's, it's odd. I think it's only for a few more days. I think until like the oh, end of the week, shit. maybe. But oh, yeah, it's... We are that, talking, and, and, and when we're talking Dune at, at Ontario Place, at the Cinesphere. Yes, the Cinesphere is is something, the, man. It is, it is something. Original, did, the original did you, IMAX. Did you go see it in IMAX at a regular theater before? Or so no? I, I, I saw it in IMAX at like Colossus. It's weird. When it comes to IMAX screenings, there's only like three like pure IMAX screens in like within region for us like the one in, the one in Vaughn the one in Square One and then the one at uh, Scotiabank the other ones like the one at like Winston Churchill are like what I call fake IMAX which like it is IMAX but like not IMAX like do you know what I mean I, no, I don't I know don't where actually have you have you have, have this, has anyone been to the IMAX at Scotiabank so I did go see Dune at IMAX 
in IMAX at Scotiabank Theater. Okay, so that one, that, that one's like a real IMAX where it's like the screen's like bigger for some reason. It's it like is, a backdrop, yeah. right? It's it, it, it's it's modeled differently because it's older, right? The newer ones are like, I mean, they're, they're technically the right size, but they just don't feel right because there's so many seats. I always liked the fact with IMAX, there was kind of like limited seating. So you felt like quasi special watching an IMAX movie. Okay, so small batches. So to speak, exactly. Like like VIP more, sections, right? Like it's just that it's Ontario place, so then I, I hate paying for parking. So then I'd have to figure that out. Yeah, parking was, and also uh, pr- tip: uh, don't park in parking lot uh, P two. Uh, that's kind of a ways away. Uh, I did not know that when parking in P two, so that was a bit of a journey. Because <laughs> sometimes what I do when I go to Ontario place or to go to Echo Beach to watch concerts is I park in the in uh, Liberty Village, because there's usually cheap parking lots there, and then that's quite, that would be quite the trek right after. And though. then I'm willing to walk like the 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll get your steps in. That's for sure. Yeah, that's what I've done for different concerts and whatnot in that okay. area. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll see. I'll see. I have to figure it out. In any case, uh, okay, that's what Mo went to go see. <laughs> what did you see? I went to see Bell on Friday. Okay. And this is the one. Uh, Jeff, how much do you want to... We, we should stay away too much from talking Bell, should we? Uh, you can also just message me on the chat. I'll, I'll wait until you're done. <laughs> I can do that. I want to keep this short because I know we... I, I, there's a curiosity. I haven't seen a Hosoda movie in years. What was the last one you saw? I think, um, I think it was Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Well, that's, I think. that's arguably his best film. I mm-hmm. think uh, it's it's blurry, so I'll have to watch it again. I, I enjoyed Mirai, uh, which was this last one. That's his. So. That's the only film I have not seen from him. Uh, although I will say I'm overdue for a rewatch of his Digimon movies because I would want to see those as an adult and not when I was ten or eleven. Uh, yes, well, yeah, that's uh, yeah. age well, just to see well, if I have a perspective on them now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, just quickly, thumbs up or thumbs down on uh, on Bell? Just a, I mean, we maybe we'll talk about it more in a few uh, in the future, but just a quick thumbs up or down? Overall, thumbs up. Ah, okay. So how about this? They keep on saying mashup between 1991 Beauty and the Beast and then his Summer Wars movie. How true would we, you say that is? Do, you, do we want to give Do we want to give uh, Jeff a, a minute here to um to mute for a second? No, I that was just a yes no. He doesn't have to explain anything. Well, more, uh, I guess. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's weird because they keep I mean, on saying that in the in the interviews and stuff like that. And I'm sure Jeff might have seen a few here or there. Okay. I'd rather not go into too much of it until more until... people have seen it. Okay. What's interesting wow. is it has been, I guess, a few weeks in that that it's been in the theaters and stuff like that. But and and it was in theaters. Said, and... It was in theaters when we really couldn't go to theaters here in Ontario. Yeah, that's why I think a lot of people like myself are waiting for maybe a Blu-ray or something we can uh, So it did get a delayed release here. We know they so have other ones. As soon as, as well, theaters such as in Ontario is when they just stuck it in the theaters here. Mm. Correct. Anyway. And then uh, other ones they delayed, like Sing a Little Harmony has come out, I think, last week from Funimation. That's 
in Cineplex and stuff like that, I guess, for the next few weeks. But I'll wait on that. And then the other one I told you guys, uh, Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, which is not something I'm going to watch, but uh, others will. I think it's coming beginning of March because they're already selling tickets, I guess. I may go mm-hmm. watch that because like, I, I've read a good chunk of the manga at this point, And then that mo- that manga movie is technically canon because it is based off of the prequel manga so yeah i might do it we'll see i'm guessing once that comes out that's when uh, the release the hounds moment might happen and cineplex might uh, allow more people in i guess but we'll see those theaters will be full on the first one or two days good enough because, okay. Yeah, I'm guessing that'll be quite more popular than Ballet and uh, Sing a Little Harmony, I'm guessing. Yeah. Right? It, that was uh, quite yeah. celebrated. Mm-hmm. All right. So also during the weekend was the final couple days of the um, Beijing Winter Olympics. And uh, truth be told, um, full disclosure on a personal level, part of why we delayed taping the episode to today instead of last night on Saturday uh, I was watching the curling, and and we're and this is quasi Jap- uh, Japanese pop culture related again because it was the women's gold medal game in in curling between Japan and Great Britain. So that was news, obviously in J- in Japan in the Jap- Japanese sports world. The women's curling team does have a cult following, but I think it's become even more mainstream over time since their since the team's Olympic run four years ago in Pyeongchang. And they faced the team they beat for bronze four years ago, but this time for gold, and it went the other way around. Great Britain dominated that game. And Skip Eve Muirhead, who has been the standard bearer for the uh, sport over the last 10 years, she was the chosen one. Or she has been the chosen one for the last decade or so on the women's curling scene. And she finally fulfilled her prophecy in many respects by winning that gold medal. But it doesn't reflect badly on Japan either. Well, both teams had to run through qualifiers to get to the Olympics, a last chance qualifier, I believe. But I think, um, you know, I, I don't think either team lost face because, well, Great Britain obviously won gold. And in terms of Japan, I don't know what was expected of them going in, especially when you had such a stacked field like the defending Olympic champions in Sweden, like the two-time world champions in Switzerland, who Japan beat in the semifinal, like a former gold medalist in Jennifer Jones in Canada. And in, in all of that, Tatsuki Fujisawa and local Solare came out with silver. So give them a little credit. And I, I'll, um, I relayed this story a few times in the four years since we returned. It's been four years, James, since version two started. Because we re- remember we, we started taping again during the Pyeongchang Olympics four years ago. We returned. Mm-hmm. We, we uh, on the, I think it was the middle, um, middle Friday of the, uh, of the games. When we return, when we started taping again, what's about to say again? It's 
as I said, it's it's a big moment for them. Now I know what I want to say. I've relayed this story about meeting that team when, uh, about three years ago when they came to Toronto for a uh, Grand Slam of curling event. First of all, um, the Japanese team, that team actually speaks very good English. I'm just going to let everyone know that now. You can actually have a conversation with them in English. But I, but I ended up speaking more to their uh, coach, J.D. Lind. And it was a really interesting conversation. I will always say that was a really enjoyable time. Plus, that day I went to see them. They beat Rachel Holman, one of the top Canadian teams at the time. And they still are. So this this is a this is a pretty good team we have here. Plus, we also found out they've become hockey fans as well. Many of their social media posts depict them wearing Calgary Flames jerseys. JD Lind is from Calgary, so I guess it rubbed off on them. Anyway, just I uh, want to bring that up, but it did have me wondering, and it kind of comes back to maybe. The U.S. as well, because um, remember, also four years ago, the you, the American men won gold, came out of nowhere and won that, and it had me wondering again. And I've had this discussion many times before with with other curling fans online. What would it what would it do, or what does the sport need to do to gain wider prominence in the U.S.? Did the gold help in that sense four years ago? I'm not totally sure. I guess it did to some degree. So here's a yes or no for you guys. Would a title, a manga or anime title that depicted curling becoming really popular in outside of Japan, i.e. in North America, help the sport of curling? Oh, sure, why not? So where would Maybe not to the same degree. Be popular yes. in Japan or in uh, the U.S. In the U.S. for the U.S. Well, the game is the game has gained guess, a following in Japan already because of the success of. Theirs. I guess well, they'd have to follow golf, right? In that respect, if they wanted U.S. success, they need a, a Tiger Woods of curling almost, or no, maybe they need, need to have a uh, wearing ridiculous shirts. I don't know. You need to have very attractive males in that manga. For it to do very well, I would imagine. Uh, kind of like the figure skating. Like high Q. It has to be kind of like high Q in that sense. Well, you think it would have to be high Q and what's the figure skating manga? It's named Yuri on Ice. Yeah. Yuri on Ice. Yep. Uh, the yeah. anime, yeah. I know people were talking about Pride of Orange, uh, what was it, last year, and that was the hockey anime, and I don't think that's making people want to go out and play uh, hockey, that's for sure. So it would have. So that's what it would take. It was funny because, and I'll pose this question to when we when we talk again to Matt Alt as well. Remind me on that, James. Okay, because mm-hmm. yeah, I, I about a year uh, a year ago I had a similar conversation with Mister Alt, and I asked him if there's any manga based on curling, and he actually sent me some images. It was actually really funny, but I I, I just thought it would be a funny conversation to have a little further down the road. So, but yeah, but thank you. Uh, you you put up some interesting thoughts on the criteria for such a thing, Kevin. So thanks a lot. Need sex appeal? No, that type of sex appeal, for that matter. So, Jeff, Mo, you have a thought, or 
I've, like a yes or no. Or do you or you okay with that thought? It's it's mostly just a, a a no, but only because I feel that with something like curling, you have to appeal to people who aren't the traditional sports fan audience, um, because it's a it's a different you know type of it's a sport, but it's a different type of of event compared to. Uh, you know, the other competitive team sports that exist. Like, um, you know, you don't have all the team on at the same time. Um, it's not, it, it can be incredibly exciting, but it's not fast paced. Um, and it doesn't have the, I mean, it, it has a little bit of the weird uh, rich person clout that golf has, but not quite to the same degree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, has, like it's, it, it's a relatively accessible sport, so I don't. <laughs> weirdly, I think that that's a, a hindrance to uh, you know appealing to the golf type crowd, which I feel would be the you know probably the most equatable audience when it comes to you know people looking for a sport of that kind of speed. Um, I almost said. I almost said. Yeah, that type of speed. I, I when I when but you when with you saying it, I was thinking about more the culture. And when I think culture, I was thinking I think, the same thing because you have curling, you have golf. Another one you think about is tennis as well. Tennis has mm-hmm. that kind of culture to a degree, but it's broken well, out was, of it. But like, over the last twenty years, I was thinking a little bit more hockey because of its small town culture, at least in Canada. But ho- the the thing is, though, hockey, like hockey, is huge um, in in Canada and the the U.S. Um, and hockey has. A, a higher point of entry. It costs a lot to to play hockey. You know, even you know, in anywhere beyond casually, it costs a lot to play hockey. You generally need your own equipment, um, and like that, that's inhibitive for people. And that's why I think it's a little bit different from um, different but similar to to tennis and golf, uh, because both of those sports do have that country club aspect. Um, and curling does as well, but there there seems to be less of of a class divide for curling. Like um, when I've when I've been to curling clubs, it doesn't feel like they're you know um, relatively high you know uh, upper middle class or you know um, lower high class um, people. It, it seems like fairly middle class or accessible for for most people because you're not bringing your own uh you know rocks or you know brooms for the most part i'm sure once you get professional although, you although, do. although in, yeah in the professional side yeah it, do kind of kind of like bowling yeah, bowling right like if if you're oh, I, okay. yeah because yeah, like i i did one bowling where everything's right there on the event floor right you just have to well, go not, up and kind of mean that you brought up Bowling, that's probably an even more keen comparable. But I, but I, the weird thing is, I think bowling might be less popular than curling, at least in Canada. Um, I'm not sure about the U.S. Um, but I think bowling is incredible, probably fairly comparable as far as like the audience and uh, you know, arguably the type of sport it is as well. Um, I know when I was a young teen, I did like league bowling, so I wasn't professional, but I was still you know trying to get better and be on a uh, points and this was um, five pin, um, but you know when I first started, I just used what was at the bowling alley. But as kind of the year, I was only there for like two or three years. But as the years went on, um, I was like, okay, let's let's purchase my my own because I can start to feel like like okay, this weight is better for me and that kind of thing. So 
Um, yeah, I don't know a whole lot about curling. I have tried it. Um, I like my knees, so I'm not pursuing curling. But um... well, I like I like my ta- I like my tailbone, and I played it in <laughs> high school, and I slipped badly mm. a half a dozen times, and my spine still feels it today. Mo, do you have something to add? Yeah, I know you. I was, hand I was just gonna say, I, I, it, it seems like everyone's gone bowling before. Like, <laughs> 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 I, hey, Mo, I did virtual boy, bowling yesterday on my Switch. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wait, not the Wii? They were doing a test fire for Switch sports, and bowling was one of the sports I could try. Ah, well, actually, we're going to talk Nintendo a bit later. So, Yeah, I will say that new, that new sports looks pretty darn cool, guys. Which one's that? The Switch sports? The new, the new Nintendo oh. sports? Okay. Well, let's, we'll we'll talk Nintendo a bit later on. So, but th- thanks for the thoughts. I thought that was an interesting. So how is watching that together there, Mike? I think you and Mo and maybe even Kevin were watching it. It was okay. I enjoyed it. I enjoy that, watching curling. Yeah, I, I enjoy I enjoyed it regardless. Okay. So, as I said, it's been two weeks since we uh, last chatted. There has been some headlines, but. Uh, Others have been more just, you know, the usual webinars that uh, dotted throughout much of the pandemic. And I think it was on the 15th, on Tuesday. On Tuesday, there was a webinar put on by the Japan Society. A webinar on anime and manga, of course. It was headlined by um, Roland Keltz and moderated by Bill Suitsi. And uh, another artist by the name of Julia Meckler. We're going to talk about this for a couple minutes. And I just, I, I watched the video of this just before we came on the air. And I uh, gave the assignment to the others to watch it. And guess what? None of them did. So I'm going to try and Coles note it with the others because I, there were some interesting points that came out in that discussion. So I think the. And we're going to put a YouTube of this, of this uh, presentation in our links for this episode. But really, I think the um, overarching thought from, from it is really how much, can, how much of this, the crossroads that the industry now faces as it becomes bigger, as it becomes more mainstream. I think the uh, question that was ultimately posed by Julie, Julia Meckler, and I'm going to talk at length about her. She, was, she has an interesting backstory. Her big question is, can anime and manga remain made in Japan as all this is going on? So I'll go through some of the points that both... Um, Kelts and Meckler talked about in their little presentations during this webinar. And then questions that came up as when uh, Bill Suzy eventually came in to moderate a, a discussion there. For reference, the um, webinar was called Japanese Pop Culture Connecting the World Through Anime and Manga. And once again, it was presented on February 15th. This past Tuesday, uh, Kelts, um, points, and these are the Coles notes versions and the notes that I ended up writing in 20, in 
Yeah, over the course of the pandemic, and maybe more specifically in 2020-2021, manga sales grew 171%. And for the first time, the foreign market eclipsed the domestic market for anime and manga, which I which is to say the Japanese market isn't the main market anymore for Japanese anime and manga. I mean, which kind of makes sense. I mean, it's an aging population, right? Well, we ha- we we've gone through this line before, right? But does it does it still have the the largest chunk of the the circle graph, though? Um, oh, you mean as uh, when you break down each region? Yeah, right? I imagine it still would. Like, even if the the overall percentage of like you know U.S. plus U.K. plus France, especially uh, plus Brazil plus you know whatever any other countries like that, you know, if you add all those together, I'm sure it's bigger than Japan, but. I'd imagine Japan is still the largest individual, you know, triangle. Yeah, and which slice. is a fair point, but who knows where that's going? That, that could be going down too. So Kelts, uh, Kelts also folks that it's, we've come to the point where the, where, and this is kind of staying the obvious, um, basic, the basic media mix theory in the idea that anime becomes an advertisement for the other products in the, in the mix. Specifically manga, but we talk about a bunch of other things. Light novels, video games. It's like whatever the big one is, it's going to promote the other one in the triangle, so to speak, that they've always done. But whether they expand that out to the foreign markets, that's going to be interesting because there's still many in the Japanese market that still believe Japan first, so to speak, and anything else is gravy. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes because they've been dragging their heels for well over two decades. Right. Right. And, but he, but in his, in his little speech, Celts also want to focus on some of the key traditions that happened in the 18th and 19th century, more specifically that fed into what we now know uh, into the anime and manga industry, key traditions from Japanese culture that fed into it. So he want, he used the phrase a focus on hybrid art forms, or I guess I'm paraphrasing, but went on the idea that it's problematic to use the term purely Japanese because a lot of things beginning in the 18th and 19th century, I guess, were inf- were had influence from foreign foreign places, and he would cite around the time of the. Um, Restoration and the dawning of the uh, Meiji era as a key moment when that influence became even more acute. He cited three um, art forms Imakimono, the scroll painting. Basically, uh, when you look at these type of Japanese scroll paintings, they look really like scribbles. They had a satire tone, often poked fun at the, at the upper class, had a degree of humor and irreverence. But it also had some fundamental elements for the industry that would eventually develop, he would say. He used the phrase economy of lines, simple line work. And in many respects, it happened later on, too. Um, he, he often cited, um, cited Charles Schultz as having it himself later on with his Peanuts works. Second one, second art form, ukiyo-e, woodblock painting took emphasis once again on that on economy of lines and, and brought more storytelling elements into it. And maybe key for it was that 
it can be produced on a larger scale. And the irony of it is, at the time, it was considered throwaway art, low art. And that was Kinda in like, Japan, and then yeah, once yeah, they it, imported it, it turned into it something high, else, right? It became high art. Manga, in many ways, had a, has a similar path. Remember, remember when we talked with um, Fred Schott uh, a couple of years ago at Anime North, uh, James, and I brought up his uh, picture of of selling, you know, manga magazines at train stations. Saying, and he mentioned these would be bought at a train station and then read on the train and probably tossed out at the end of the line. Well, kind of left, the next person would read it, and then it would just be left and then thrown out probably at the end of the day because it was disposable. It was just like you're reading the newspaper going to work, right? Mm-hmm. I think when I when I first visited Japan, that was something that surprised me because like, I was like, okay, I'll, cool, I'll buy um, some Japanese manga, you know, just you know, for the, the novelty of it and, and picking it up, like it felt like the newsprint was crumbling, you know, in my hands, like the oils <laughs> were going to dissolve uh, every page um, compared to like, and, and not, and like, you know, the newsprint that we use here, like for manga, it's not like it's the best quality paper ever, but by comparison, it was significant. Um, but yeah, with, um, with the Ukiyo, uh, a work, it's such a great comparison because, you know, it was revered in the West once it started to get, um, you know, uh, shipped to Europe once trade started with that. Um, and from what I've I've read, the Japanese people were so surprised. Like, they're like, they want this? I, I, are you sure? Like, we, we have tons of it in the back. Like, we can, yeah, we can sell it, sure. Um, but it was this, like, you know, goes into Orientalism, I guess. Um, but, you know, it was seen as this um, magical other uh, type of art form, and it started to influence uh, the, the European artists. Um, and a lot of the people in Japan, they had no idea, because um, it would be, you know, middlemen who were doing all of these deals. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's, a, it's such a fascinating, you know, parallel. Um, and there's other similar forms of art, like there's, there's, small like little books that you know are almost the same format as japanese manga um Mm -hmm. as far as size goes um and that leads to his third art form that he cited in his in his little speech the kamishibai the paper play street corner storytellers pictorial narratives and he referred to it as perhaps a precursor to television things um I guess this was something that became more prominent in the immediate post-war days, roughly. So he he would he cited these three as as traditional art forms that would have had influences on the industry at some point. He also, um, as he ended, he pointed out one other word or one other concept the concept of emotional tones the idea of how expressions kind of uh, are the well i guess it's a picture worth a thousand words there's a there's a longer story about this about about um and he went into um talking a lot about rashomon in the process and the story behind that and the actual you know, Octagawa 
classic story there. There's a little bit more, and maybe my notes uh, start to get a little bit blurry. So I'll put that aside, and I will all, and I will recommend everybody who hears this get a chance to see that video. Julia Meckler. Julia Meckler is, I think, the star of this. If you didn't know who she was, because a lot, let's face it, we've mentioned a lot about Roland Kelts. He's he's a well-known figure through the last couple decades. Bill Suitsi, who we mentioned last year in one of those other webinars, so he's become a little bit more known to us as well. And I think known to anybody who likes to talk about the anime and manga academia discussion world. Julia Meckler was all was a surprise to me. At least, you know, I, I hadn't really heard of her before, but she offered a lot of interesting perspectives to the table. She's an American-born, but her mother was is Okinawan. She was born, I believe, in Minnesota, but spent her formative years in Okinawa, but came back to Minnesota for college, and then has spent her life since basically going to and from both places. But she talked about the post-war in American influence in Okinawa, and, would often, and stated, anime and manga never really did become popular there because of all the American alternatives that were presented there because of the occupation. Because after the war, it was an American territory up until 1972 when it reverted back into Japanese hands. And if you know further back into Okinawa's history, you know that it was its own kingdom as well. But because of that, the perception of comics and cartoons was a lot of the Western thinking. All this is for kids. The turning point is a rather recent development. It was the beginning of Comic-Con Okinawa. That started probably, he, I think she cited 2016. So to her, otaku culture is a more recent development. And they often use the word otaku a lot more in this presentation. The one word I didn't hear was weeb. Sorry, that's an aside. For reference, she works on mobile video games, and she is a manga creator. She is the creator of a title called Hymn of the Tida, which is now being published by Heavy Metal. She wanted to make a story because she wanted to have an Okinawan protagonist, which, which is really interesting. Remember when we talked Wave with Listen to Me last year? Or was it two years ago? In 2020, I believe, because we talked about a character or a story based in Hokkaido, which was something that we never really saw in anime or manga. So here we are talking about a woman who wants to have a protagonist from Okinawa. She tried to shop it around in Japan, but not many picked it up. Ironically, Heavy Metal picked it up, a U.S. publisher. And while the title, I guess, may not have gained much steam, ironically, it does now have a theme song by Blessed Four. If you are a J-pop fan, you may recognize them. They've, uh, they're behind a few Annie songs, from what I understand. 
Yep. Yeah. Uh, Bless Four is uh, the creation of Akino, who older school anime fans may know for uh, the Genesis of Aquarian anime openings, as well as a couple others like Amagi Brilliant Park. And it's pretty much it's her and her siblings that form this group. Yeah, they're 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 a fun listen. Very energetic. Bless four are Okinawan. So the title kind of kind of resonated with them, and they've they've uh, begun an association with Meckler. So she hopes in, that her she can get a little bit more of a cross media collaboration, but. She's talking about some of the uh, complications she's having in the process. And hence her question. Can anime and manga remain, quote-unquote, made in Japan? And with that, Bill Suitsi came in and we started a discussion. There was a few questions asked. So I'm going to go through some of these. The Well, it was only an hour and only, what, three or four questions were asked and they got through. And you guys can interject if something catches your attention as I go through these questions and what both um, Keltz and Meckler said. So the first question that came up in their debate was, so what makes anime and manga so special? Keltz believed there's a before and after in this scenario, and that's before and after Pokemon. In the late 90s. Once again focused on the economy of lines. Cites the simplicity of Charles Schultz. That's where the uh, Charles Schultz line came in. Pokemon brought that concept to life. And maybe because of it. Pokemon was something. Maybe anime and manga as a whole. Was. Became more of a, uh, a participatory type media. It's not something he, he says you can say about. Maybe a lot of North American media. It's media you can join, quote-unquote. And that's the power of the otaku culture. It feels open to you. You, you know, when I, said, when I heard that line, I, re- I reflected on some of the, well, some of the um, flame wars that have happened over the last couple years. Because I'm not totally, like, that's a great idea in, on paper, but you know sometimes in practice, it's taken on a lot of issues, right? Fan involvement and maybe this feeling of people being too emotionally attached to the media. But there is a certain intimacy. As I said, that can be both good and bad. Meckler made a, a really interesting line that'll, that will probably come back to, you'll hear again in some form later on as I go through the questions. She cited the fact that Japan doesn't have a single dominant religion, so it allows its creators to make an open story, even down to how characters look. Or as another point, I guess, even down to how characters look, they don't look Japanese. So maybe people around the world can become a part of it, representation, relate to it. Tsutsi, for his part, Notes Japanese talent working in other countries. And we, this is a chicken-egg argument because we know we've had a discussion as to why that's the case in past episodes. And we'll come back to that maybe a bit here. 
But also note, he also noted that production is becoming more worldwide and in, in the process, the audience has too. Kaltz notes the problems in the current Japanese industry. That's where we're going and how low paying it is. Notably how Chinese companies are scouting Japanese talent for their initiatives and notes how the entire anime and manga catalog of 70 years makes for good source material. And this is where the, um, I think the involvement and the, you know, the participatory nature of, of fandom is starts to become a little bit problematic. The anime and manga catalog of 70 years makes for good source material. The inventory of materials is incredible. And he also, and Kelts also notes, young Japanese just really know how to draw. And that culture cannot be easily replicated. Stories is a source, is a natural resource there. But, but we're at this point where, quote unquote, there isn't as much oil in the ground anymore. According to Sutsi. Kelts also speaks to Meckler's thought about flexible spirituality and how it makes Japanese stories more agile. So because of that, uh, some stories that go into social issues can explore taboo ones without being so heavy-handed. No institutional religion exists there to really influence the narrative. But... Meckler notes that because of that too, some stories acceptable in Japan may not be accepted elsewhere. So this is where we have that East and West balance to talk about. I guess this is where, you agree or disagree, is this where we start having that discussion about anime being, anime and manga being too over-sexualized? That's, that's one of the more controversial debates within fandom, right? Depends on where you go, right, Mike? Because it could be over-sexualized in one place and another place. It could be overly hyper-violent, right? Because that's what they were talking about in the 90s, remember? Well, do you think this is they're onto something with this discussion here mm. so far? Or do you want to see this for yourself? I, I'd wait to see, but I think Jeff has a point to make. Yeah, like, I'm... I'm it's really interesting. Like, my initial reaction to... Um, and this is making me curious to see the video. So good, good job with, uh, pushing that. Um, but even with your recounting, um, when, when you mentioned the idea that it started with Pokemon, my initial reaction was fairly resistant because I felt, what, what do you mean? Pokemon? Like, yeah, it's, it's a multimedia franchise, but when it comes to anime and manga, you know, there's been, you know, before Pokemon, Sailor Moon, Dragon Ball, um, you know, Totoro, like all these different things. Um, and then I thought like, you know, with going the, with the participatory angle, you know, like, wh what are you talking about? There's, there's been Star Trek conventions forever. There's been, um, you know, other types of, of fictional media conventions. But then I started to, to think that maybe Pokemon's success as far as, as breaking through and, you know, making, like, normalizing or starting to normalize uh, Japanese animation um, in ways that it wasn't before. Um, so, you know, thinking about, you know, yeah, Dragon Ball existed before Pokemon, but Dragon Ball Z started to rise after Pokemon. Um, Yu-Gi-Oh! came out, which eventually led to, you know, 
stations, uh, companies saying, okay, these, these couple shows, people are watching them. Let's experiment with Gundam Wing. Let's throw, you know, Inuyasha on late night in YTV. Um, and like, I'd say gradually, but fairly, probably rapidly, things started to expand, um, to the point where, yeah, it's, it's still a niche hobby, but so many people, so many more people know about it and it, it's, in that sort of public consciousness, where if I think about Sailor Moon and even the Sailor Moon convention that exists here in Toronto, I feel that if it probably if it wasn't for for Pokemon kind of starting um, this more mainstream acceptability and interest, that Sailor Moon convention would be the same thing as you know the Gargoyles convention or um, you know the the eighties toy convention. It would exist. It would have its fans. But it it maybe wouldn't be as as widely uh, trafficked. Um, you know, anime conventions might still be you know the equivalent of Star Trek conventions. There'd be a few huge ones, um, but you know there wouldn't be like it maybe also wouldn't be as absolutely huge as comic conventions. But you know, Pokemon might have actually like placed anime in this like. And yeah, anime conventions are pretty broad, like, you know, Doctor Who cosplay, My Little Pony, like, etc. But, you know, as a, I guess, category, Pokemon might have placed it in that second place right under, you know, general comics, which I think is a, it's a cool, like, it, it's, it's definitely sparked my imagination of like, wow, like, I'm a huge Pokemon fan, but it's like, wow, Pokemon might have done more for anime than I gave it credit for. I guess uh, I guess we look at it also through an American eyes. Yes or no? Sailor Moon was was that bigger in Canada than it would have been in the states, and did it have that a little bit more influence? Yes, and that's what I was thinking too. <laughs> I was going to say is that we look at it in more rose colored glasses. I think for Sailor Moon because we got it on YTV in the afternoons on uh, the Zone and all that. I think it was more fed at us. Than it was in the states, and we got probably more toys and other things. So it was a bigger success here than down there. Whereas Pokemon, remember, it was a global phenomenon that they said it's going to die. It's going to die. Times <laughs> like this is just a fad. It's going to die. It still hasn't died after. Let's see, where are we at? Almost twenty years or so. Twenty five years now. Yeah. Five years, and but it, it's different. Yeah. Hey, at least Game Freak is kind of trying to change it up with Arceus now, right? We'll see how that goes. <laughs> The popularity of the of the title has endured in many different ways, and and, and ironically, it's uh, one of the more recent developments has come back to the cards. Ironically, and the cards were there at the beginning too. Remember, too. And, and 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 then they were. I don't know how they have endured over the twenty five years. It's ebbed and flowed, but I would say in the last two to three years, it was definitely fueled by the pandemic. And YouTubers popularizing the notion of opening packs, and and the Paul brothers, for that matter. Yeah, it's and all they got was GI Joe cards. And now you you have people who are just buying product on mass and are speculating it now. Like they're some people are just holding on to stuff, hoping that they appreciate in value. Uh, some people. Don't play the game. They just like the pretty artwork, which is cool. Some people just like the notion of opening packs because it's kind of like 
it gives them that dopamine rush. It's in a sense, it's kind of like gambling, even because it's like you're trying to grab those rare cards. Hmm. I mean, like Pokemon is the most successful media franchise, I think. Um, But like, I think that, you know, its influence, like kind of went beyond that, because I feel that like what it started has kind of branched off in a different direction. Like Pokemon remains, you know, successful, popular, um, well-known, you know, people of all ages kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it seems like it has, you know, started, you know, branching pathways in other directions. Like would, um, would there be resurgence of, of Magic the Gathering without Pokemon? Like it's possible, but people learned, you know, that system of trading card game by playing Pokemon. Um, you know, the anime direction, um, it definitely changed, you know, video games to some degree. Um, not that every video video game is releasing two versions, but um, yeah, like with with the anime manga fandom direction, um, direction, I think that I'm not sure we'd be in this place. We we would be in in a place. I feel that um, I feel that Dragon Ball was was still would still likely have made an impact i think in latin america um saint Seiya would have still um you know probably had its its wild success um you know but but the north america situation i think is such an interesting like and we'll never know because pokemon did exist and it did change the landscape yeah you can't yeah i get that but do you think this is becoming a little bit too American centric? That's interesting. Yeah, because like the the question, you know, wasn't really about that. Um, and I'm not. And when I thought about his response, um, I was thinking about like Pokemon as an anime and manga in Japan. And I feel that specifically as an anime and manga in Japan, I'm not sure how big Pokemon's influence was. Like it was there, it was big, but like I, I, I you know. I don't. I'm not an expert in this subject matter, but I feel like anime and manga would still <laughs> have gone on without it Pokemon. Was, it was just one of the big things, probably. Just like as we know, uh, oh, what was I think Demon Slayer is the big thing now. Is kind of in that mind. Whereas in outside Japan, I think Pokemon it just took that extra leap to push our minds forward to take another look and yeah. make us look at anime and manga a different way and become fans even more. And it ignited sparks as we've talked about before, Mike, where in video games and stuff like that, you look at the NES and then the NES and Genesis and stuff like that. And a lot of the games, of course, were coming from Japan and they had to bring them over to localize. You can try and scrub things from that. And even in Pokemon, they scrub things and you can put in as many jelly uh, donuts as you want, <laughs> but you can't take out like the soul, the Japanese content in there, right? And you still can have those signs, and that makes you continue on in life to say, "Hey, I think I know that," and you want to watch more, right, of where it's from and find out more about it. And mm-hmm. I think even with um, the most recent Pokemon game of Legends Arceus, it's interesting because you know they've they've had foreign regions for the last few generations like since um five was in uh the united states new york um six was i think um hawaii no six was france 
France um, and then Hawaii. Seven, yeah, then Hawaii, then the UK. So they haven't, like, aside from remakes, they haven't been back to Japan in quite a few years. And not that this is a mainline game, but, you know, it's explicitly, like, fairly explicitly, 1800s Hokkaido. Like, you know, they eat potato mochi, which coming, you know, I, I was placed in the south of Japan, so I'd never really heard of potato mochi, but I researched it. It's very much a thing in Hokkaido. Um, you know, the clothing, the the state of um, sort of westernization in some of the clothing, um, you know, the the music, the the architecture, um, it's, it's all like, yeah, this is, you know, 1700s, 1800s Hokkaido. Um, so it's interesting. And, and honestly, even the, um, you know, Pokemon games in France and Hawaii, they had Japanese elements to it because it's made in Japan. Um, but I, I just, I do find it interesting that, you know, the latest sort of big Pokemon game, they are going back to Japan for the first time in a while. Mm. Okay. So you want me to continue here? I should continue. There's, <laughs> there's a lot more here I want to go to. No, but the Pokemon thought was an interesting thought, though, just to know where we, where it's, where he think the, um, he think the catalyst was, at the very least, a catalyst. Okay, Meckler, Meckler, and going fur- further, uh, further going on the whole uh, being special point, and maybe the um, crossroads that the industry now ex- now faces in Japan itself. Meckler feels that because of the 70 years of source material, the abundance of stories, creators are not appreciated. People can consume for free. So there's the double-edged sword right there. And we, I, I have to back, maybe that's worth a backtrack, but maybe at some other point. But this is, and this is the true crossroads moment now. Japan, uh, uh, the way Celts puts it, Japan has a tradition of making great physical things. So it's transitioning to a world of digital in that sense. Okay, maybe I got the context wrong. Watch the video. Second question. Has the growth of the industry made opportunities for foreigners? And this, they didn't, they didn't really talk too much on this question. Meckler is hopeful. She thinks it will. Celts, while citing Yasuke, dampened it a little bit by mentioning the market for non-Japanese-made comics in Japan itself is pretty weak. They're just not very receptive to it right now. So because of that, it's very hard for non-Japanese to get into the market in Japan. And I guess Meckler might agree with that thought too. Okay, third question was by somebody who mentioned, with a little bit more mention of LGBTQ topic titles, can the existence influence that type of change, at least in Japan? And I think this is where they were kind of mixed in that feeling. Meckler started by saying, strangely, watching stuff like that, especially in Sailor Moon notably, it felt natural to her to watch that because it was the stuff she watched when she was younger. We had this, the whole concept of non-binary happened in Sailor Moon before the term was basically coined, she said. It became a so what type attitude when these things came up. But according to Celts, don't kid yourself, Japan has a lot of issues. 
But in the end, to them, storytelling is just storytelling. And he once again cites the idea that there is no Judeo-Christian traditions and restrictions. And no, not as much in the way of moralism that would dictate their storytelling. An openness to writers for their own content. So acceptance of fluidity and tolerance in that sense. But it's sadly also very intolerant for those who are just different. Mentions that movies and TV is really fantasy on some level. In other words, reality bites. You should go to Japan, but don't expect it to be an anime show. So it may not work that way in Japan, but it may inspire elsewhere in the world. And Bill and Suitsi gave his answer by adding, seeing difficult issues through another culture can be empowering because it doesn't hit so close to home. And he cites the example of Korean titles like Squid Game and Parasite resonating outside of Korea. They made people reflect on their own society's inequalities by seeing the inequalities of another society play out, albeit fictionally. As I said, feel free if there's something that caught your attention, okay? That I said. Yes. So, like, I know I just went on that huge Pokemon rant, but um, in regards to the the LGBT issues, it's still a censorship censorship issue in Japan. Um, You know, I was just talking with a friend... um, recently and there's uh some music-based show euphonium something so it's about someone who plays the baritone um and apparently it's you know the the queer audience is loving it but there's you know the controversy like is this queer baiting um and are the the authors are the people making this uh series being restricted because it's a popular a popular series like a relatively mainstream series so even though there's implications um nothing can go on on camera nothing can be made explicit um you know similar but a little bit more progressive uh stuff happened with yuri on ice where you know it was it ended up being more explicit but it wasn't for the longest time um and i think it's it's interesting because i think it a lot of it be really depends on how how mainstream is the series um and also how prominent is the character um if there is a side character who is oh i'm you know i'm i have two moms fine the, you find that character um in japan actually that would probably be a little bit uncommon it would more likely be a one girl character saying i have a crush on another girl but like it's it's going to happen with a side character like in in sailor moon you had you know the the outer planet um uranus and neptune characters but it's not sailor moon it's not mercury it's not mars um you know it's not those first three it's not even the the general cast it's it's secondary characters um and you see this in you know other shows there's been um you know famously i think it's dirty pair there was a famous uh uh, trans episode, but that's one episode. You're not talking about the protagonists. Um, when there is a LGBT focused series, it's not a mainstream one. Um, something like Wandering Sun isn't going to get, you know, a lot of merchandise deals, nor probably should it. Um, but, you know, it's, there are 
pretty great representational stories in Japan when it comes to these issues. Um, but they're not, they're not the Attack on Titans. They're not the Demon Slayers. There's, they're not, they're not the Pokemon. Um, they yeah. There's not going to move the barometer, unfortunately. Video games. You're going to get a one episode, uh, lip service in something like, um, uh, what's the, the main magical girl? It's, mind is blanking um in japan um pretty cure yeah it's the one you're gonna have a one episode you know pre-cure episode where it's like oh here's a character are they trans probably great here's progressiveness and then back to status quo for a hundred episodes um hopefully a little bit less gap in the future but you know as as you said mike it's not the the triple a series so there's stuff there but it's We're talking you know Kind of I, again with yeah with what was said. Don't kid yourself. Um, you know it's it's not you know Japan is not the most progressive country. It's, it's not a very least. homogenous uh, <laughs> country to say the least, and they don't like it when you're standing up from the herd. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, you're gonna do better than a lot of you know places. Probably most of the U or not. Half of the U.S. places in the Middle East, somewhere like Malaysia, you're going to be better in Jap off in Japan if you're sticking out. Um, you know, they might ignore the the bent nail more often these days instead of or taking it out and sawing it on the fire. Just plain sawing it, and so it's nice and smooth. Yeah. So interesting, interesting metaphor. Yeah. What was the last question, Mike? Has foreign the foreign popularity of anime and manga changed the art form? And this is this is the drawing the line moment. I think that um, <laughs> that we've reflected on over the past couple of years. Oh, so what did they say, Mike? Well, in, in, we, uh, well Meckler basically off. says it goes back to the art style, but um, I, I we didn't I didn't really write any further notes. But Celts, Celts uh, said that. The way things are going, he sees titles titles dividing themselves in two categories, and that's kind of come to the forefront in the last half decade, the way he puts it. And I guess it's because of you know streaming services like Netflix, to a lesser degree, Crunchyroll, certainly Prime. Anime-inspired work? Look or inspired by legacy works? And... The other one being another look at conventional homegrown anime, probably made in more tinier studios. But the key thing for it is it's made for the Japanese audience. Maybe a Back to the Future thing, going, put, putting the roots, uh, the roots going back to the grass. That's but he also concedes it's hard to predict because something that's made in Japan or made for Japanese people sometimes has a habit, often has the habit. Of becoming way popular outside, outside of its intended audience. Demon Slayer, I guess, is, it might be the easiest example. I would have cited Love Hina too, was, because um, because of Kenaka Matsu's known reaction to the popularity of that title internationally. Sorry, James. No, I was just thinking, as you said, it's like it's been over twenty years for some of us. And the first boom and stuff like that. And they were saying then, it's like, oh my God, this is popular overseas. And they're still saying that. So I think the whole market is still where uh, they go at. And you never know what will pop out of that. But it'll be interesting to see as they age further, 
to see how much of that happens because you can only sell to a certain amount of people for so long, right? And there's only so much they can do because they're getting older and older. So it'll be interesting to see where the turning point comes. The interesting thing, though, too, to see it as well now that we've seen the past decade compared to the early 2000s is you have a lot of shows where they aren't beholden like One Piece to say, okay, we have to go out on every single week or case closed, uh, Detective Conan, where it's like, we have to go on every week. Like, they'll do like, okay, we're going to do 13 episodes or 24 episodes, take a break and then come back later. And we've seen that obviously with Attack on Titan and many other shows. And even though sometimes when they hit, they really hit. And Attack on Titan has been showing that again because I think I saw, what was it, uh, last, uh, a month or two ago with the final season or the final, final season showing up. <laughs> the bull. The Billboard uh, Rock Chart, I guess, in the U.S., their opening was number one. And I can't think of any opening anime song or ending anime song. And remember, they have a lot of uh, songs that I think are pretty good that have even hit any sort of chart internationally. So, kind of crazy that's going into another uh, zone, so to speak. But it'll be interesting to see that diatribe between those that are going to be focused more on the home market versus those that may try to put a little uh, Western influence because some have tried and it doesn't always work, right? Even with uh, the co-producers, whether it be funny, crunchy, Netflix, mm. whoever. I don't know, it's, it's a reflective point. I, I just think it's, I think that divide's always been there. It's just, I guess it's a little bit more obvious now. When, you know, when you think about it. And some of it is too, I guess, who are they going to be going to? Like first, the Star Wars Visions one, I wonder how well that did in Japan versus the rest of the world and stuff like that, because that was probably for the rest of the world when we say anime inspired. And then even other ones like Crunchyroll, I think last season had the Blade Runner anime that was a co-pro between them and Adult Swim. And that probably is more for outside of uh, Japan and stuff like that. And even the one this season with Shamu, I think uh, Shamu is probably... For outside Japan, although, only, although almost, that's a very Japanese story, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure it probably did better than those other ones I mentioned in Japan, but I still think maybe it might do a bit better outside. But I could be wrong. Have you watched an say. episode yet? Yes, I've watched the first day. episode. I need to get to the next two episodes. I can tell you from episode one, he has not found any sailors. If you guys know where to find sailors, please <laughs> tell me. And I haven't seen a forklift either. Oh, we're not that. We're, we're, it's early in the story. Uh, but his yes. father did well, die. The, isn't that how know. the game begins anyway? So, uh, well, just, did we just maybe, put up all of it? Yeah, um, what do you think is going to finish the story? Uh, which do you think will tell the story to the end? The anime or the game? That's my question. I, I don't think, like, I think this is just a one-off. They made the deal, Crunchyroll, and then... And I think uh, Yu is like, sure, why not? It's like, let's do this. But I think they're only going to get to the beginning of Hong Kong. That's Basically, my gut. somewhere in two. But, you know, that's it. Yeah, oh. somewhere in two. But it's interesting, too, because this one, when I was watching it, they had all the credits and everything. It was all localized in and stuff like that, which you rarely see. Usually, they just leave the Japanese ones in. And this one, Crunchyroll... 
I was looking at the credits in that, and them and Adult Swim were having help from Sentai, as we had said before, because they gave the whole dub cast, which was from Sentai, and it looks like they might have got translation support from them, too. Yeah. I think Shenmue's a good example, though, because I think, like... Um, I think there are, are lots of things in the video game realm. Um, if you think about how how much more popular Metroid is uh, in you know the U.S. and um, Canada or North America and probably Europe uh, compared to Japan, like there's no Metroid, there's no real interest in Metroid in Japan. It's there, but it's it's you know in passing. Um, even the Legend of Zelda, like it's a popular game in Japan for sure. It's it's made by you know, a Japanese team, I think, relatively exclusively. Um, there's little Japanese-isms, if you want to call them that, in a lot of the the Legend of Zelda games. Um, but, you know, you don't really find a lot of of merchandise in Japan for it. But here in, in North America, there's like, you know, officially licensed car de- uh, decals, um, you know, laptop screens, um, you know, t-shirts aplenty, like there's there's memes of the kind of person who wore the green <laughs> t-shirt with the yellow Triforce on it and cargo pants. Like it's become, like The Legend of Zelda is so much part of, of the North American culture. Like there was a Western cartoon with the Excuse Me Princess. Um, they, like and there wasn't a Legend of Zelda anime. Um, so it's, it's interesting how, you know, of course there's going to be influence and and sharing and people are going to like certain things and not like other things and i think that's that's cool it's interesting though because legend of zelda they did get a long-running manga going over some of the different games in japan but you're right that one it's kind of changed i i think a bit since breath of the wild but it's true like it was so much more bigger outside japan for legend of zelda and even the team admitted as much in the early aughts and that after Wind Waker <laughs> and even though now people look at it, right uh, Jeff as yeah. this great work of art and they really can appreciate it but the time like they fell down like it didn't really meet the expectations so they're like oh shit we got to do something different and they looked at the audience outside Japan they said we got to be like these other people we got to make the most realistic Zelda <laughs> whatever we can and they come out with Twilight uh, princess make and it brown they, and when the north outside <laughs> audience saw that trailer it's like oh they like it let's make this happen <laughs> and then of course we saw how twilight like it was still a good game people enjoyed it but i don't think it reached the heights even that a lot of them thought it would and it wasn't until breath of the wild that i think we saw the breath come back right into that series but and- even metro will be hopefully maybe it finds a breath soon at some point like the new one dread so far has been doing well but as you said i don't think in japan that's uh, lighting up the sales charts or lighting up the merchandise charts yeah and and prime 4 probably isn't also in japan we'll see what happens in north america um but on the opposite end of that i think it's interesting to look at splatoon where it's you know it's it, i think it's visual design and honestly even music design is a cultural essay in video game form um, but, you know, there's, there's certainly Western influences in the design, in the music, in the fashion and all that. And it, yeah, it's it sold okay in the US, but like, it's huge in Japan. Like it's, it's a pillar of Nintendo in Japan along, you know, side Kirby and, and Animal Crossing and everything. And it's, again, it's sold okay here, but like, that's a, 
you know, kind of not the complete reverse because it's still designed in Japan. But, you know, there is an example of designed in Japan, you know, definitely most popular in Japan versus something like Zelda designed in Japan, more popular in North America. Uh, a certain irony, really. Okay. Anyway, that's uh, the notes. Uh, how did I do in advertising this uh, this webinar? <laughs> I'd say we're just going to have a, a look yeah. at it. I'm not sure if it was ever involved. You'll have to let us know. Well, as I said, it was a it was an interesting watch, and I, as I said, I only watched it roughly a couple hours ago, and I, I wrote a lot of notes, as you can see. Well, they've always had some good webinars and stuff like that, and then they've put them on their YouTube channel, which you said uh, you'll have in the link. And it's always good that even though you can't go and see it the day of. You can watch uh, some of the uh, playbacks. Well, I remember like what I always say about YouTube playbacks. It's one thing to see the the video itself, and I said this during the Japan Foundation New York presentations that happened over the past couple of years. Watch the chat, because you'll see people who are well known in terms of academia and anime journalism. They'll make themselves known in that chat, and they'll say some interesting things too. Yeah, it's nice to watch a chat like online where it's like, yes, uh, you have to have an uh, invitation and stuff like that, but it's still a nice chat where you can read along and stuff like that and find out on that side of things instead of, as the usual, if you were like in a YouTube gaming or a Twitch chat where you just see this thing scroll up like to infinity, and you're like. What am I even watching? Yeah, and there's your uh, there's your participatory aspect to that. <laughs> there you go. To use that word one more time. But there's a recommendation, a good hour to watch if you have the time. And um, it's a video, but uh, I'm sure if you want to just listen to an audio, you can just put it on passively and just go about your stuff and come back and just you know listen to it while you while you're doing going about your other chores. Once again, it's uh, the uh, Japan Society, uh, Japanese pop culture, anime, and manga. Okay, we've used up a lot of time already on that. But we do want to do a couple things in the bullets. So these are items that are meant to be small things, but could become bigger things, and but maybe not too big. Where do you want to go? Do you want to start the awards season or do you want to talk Nintendo for a couple minutes? I think leaving the awards probably for another day uh, is all right because I think like it's inter like it's interesting to look at them, but they, they some days you look at them and you're like, hmm. It's like when the Oscars have best boy and best girl in the awards <laughs> category or the Golden Globe, then I guess maybe we could we should aspire to be the best we could be, right? <laughs> oh, Mo, if I could say, which one's the best boy and best girl in Oscars? Tell me. Mo, you got the answer. Come on. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's tough to say. <laughs> Who'd be considered are, you, are you saying boy? that this year for the Oscars, best boy is going to go to Will Smith as uh, portraying yes. Richard oh. Williams? Yep, yep, and best best girl, best girl will definitely go to Nicole Kidman for portrayal of Lucy from I Love Lucy. So that that you know, there you go. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Okay, 
Well, we'll I guess we'll talk about awards and maybe more more interestingly later on. A Japanese movie was nominated for multiple Oscars. What's it called again? Uh, what? Drive my, my car. Thank you. It was on the tip of my tongue. Sorry. But I know that we can talk about that. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's funny. This year's Oscars, I mean, they went full 10, which is cool. But they're doing this thing where they're doing um, kind of like a fan vote. So if you get on Twitter and they have a website and so forth and tweet, I believe it's uh, uh, Oscars fan favorite. Maybe you can get your fan favorite movie to win an Oscar for you know, popularity regions. So it's the Spider-Man Award. You know what? Apparently, <laughs> apparently from what I'm reading so far, uh, Cinderella, the, the live-action one that came out this year, that's like getting a lot of the votes. Oh, okay. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, okay. We'll talk more awards, I guess, in weeks to come. Uh, as Much like last year, there, there's two noteworthy series of anime awards, but let's we'll save that for a bullet next week or something. And this time we'll try and actually uh, tape within a week. The Nintendo one, though, I know caught people's attention. So what is it? Nintendo is closing their 3DS and Wii U shops sometime in 2023. But no plans to offer classic content in other ways. Can we, is this an easy, can we easily substitute the words PlayStation with Nintendo in this story? Or is this... You definitely could uh, for any of them, because as even one of the stories I know that had been brought out in regards to this was, uh, of course, let's see, um, I just wanted to see, was it the uh, Video Game History Foundation, which tries to archive legacy and stuff like that, and talking about ESA members, not just Nintendo, but PlayStation and Microsoft and all that, and that they're counterintuitive to try and preserve a lot of the games and stuff like that, that a lot of people do have to resort to piracy, but a lot of people knew this day was going to come just like uh, it happened to the Wii and the WiiWare and the Wii Shop. Now, interesting for Wii is the shop and all that may be closed, but you can still download your old games. So they still have those servers up and ranked so that you can re-down your re-download your old games, but who knows how long that happens because that's still a factor. Now, I think they're still up because the Wii had over 100 million sold, right? So it'll be interesting to see with 3DS, it was relatively popular, but Wii U will be a real indicator because it was like when yeah, there was, were selling Wii consoles, like about wow. 15 million <laughs> consoles only sold. So at some point, that might be more likely to have a full set shutdown where you may not be able to update your games or re-download your games. But uh, we knew it was coming because remember the Miiverse, which was kind of like their social uh, element for Nintendo for Wii U and then on 3DS was closed a few years ago. So we knew it was going to come. And then there have been rumblings from, I guess, maybe former employees, whatever, or certain experts saying that they knew it was probably going to come at some point because they say they had to give about 10 years just to make sure that there weren't any legal implications or something to that effect. I guess that they have to give enough support to a product, right, in certain uh, jurisdictions. So they gave it 10 years 
for both of them before they had the uh, full shutdown and stuff like that. But they will allow you to re-download your games or any updates. But how long that lasts is another question. But the reason, as we said, they can probably keep those up and stuff like that is there's not as many uh, legal issues, too. Because remember, there's nothing for putting in credit cards or anything like that for going to re-download your content or other stuff. But when they keep them live, they're still liable for hackers trying to get information, right? Whether it's credit cards or anything of that uh, nature, because they're probably separate servers, right? Compared to Nintendo Switch and stuff so like that's, that. that could be the, so that could be the justification. And that could be one of the justifications as well for shutting them down to a certain extent, right? To allow no more purchases and stuff like that. And the fact that obviously... Not as many people are going on there to make purchases. Probably they are now because they got to get them in there before they close down. And it's probably going to be sooner than 2023 uh, March. And that's because that's when it's finally going to be done. But I think it was middle of this year, so at about four months or so, they're going to start uh, saying, okay, you can't like mm-hmm. add funds to your Nintendo account for free. Basically, there's... But you can accept cards. In, they'll accept point in, cards and game cards, you, and then they'll right? shut that down. It's yeah, but there is a workaround. Weirdly enough, that if you link your accounts together, which links your 3ds, your Wii U, and your Switch together, if you put money in either of those, it goes all into one wallet. So there's still kind of a workaround, but you don't have much time before you have to make yeah, so, the decision. And okay, I, I try and. Try, and this is probably the my age beginning to show. I'm trying to wrap my head around this concept of games being lost forever. Really, it's just a means by which to retrieve them at some point. That, yeah, like, because you won't be able to get them anywhere. You can't go to like a game store and say, hey... I want to get this game, like either find it used or whatever. I won't find it on eBay because a lot of them are digital only for some of these okay, ones. So that so. was the big thing for PS3, Vita, and PSP because those were the start of digital only. And even uh, 360, that was the start of digital only games. Weirdly enough, Microsoft and the 360, their store is still up, full, fully functional and still going strong. And the only ones that obviously come off and on are ones that involve licensing agreements. So that's an an, an interesting one for Microsoft. I know they've done a lot with backwards compatibility as well between their systems. But I think some of that is that the architecture was similar. That's why, for example, PS4, PS5, the sharing of games between them, because they have similar architecture, right? I think that helps them and stuff like that. The PS3 PS3 was Sony's own big creation, right? Yeah, because they're they're different altogether. And that's why probably any digital downloads I have of PS3 games, I cannot access at this point. So I I can see that point. I guess it just means that there's... And then Nintendo, remember, each system is like its own silo, right? They do it with their own thing. Hopefully after the switch they do something similar to the other guys and realize you know maybe we should allow some of these games and things like that to continue on to our next system i hope that at least a better archiving system or 
And then some of that is there in NSO, hopefully, because that's going to be how Virtual Console continues forward, that we're not going to start this drip feed all over again, which pissed off fans. Like, they were pissed off when they were buying them all at once, then they had to buy them again on 3DS and Wii U. And then they're like, we want a Netflix system. Now we have a Netflix system, the drip feed continues, and now they're pissed off and say, I want to own my games, right? No, you, you can't. can't win. Maybe they should just cram a Raspberry Pi into every new console because apparently, because <laughs> apparently, illegal emulation is perfectly fine. Like I've heard so many things about how you know it it is more difficult than people realize to to transfer these old games, and I absolutely believe people who say that. But somehow, a computer can just do it. Um, a computer that fits into like you know a calculator can do it. Uh, so I'm I'm wondering like why just just do some sort of licensing agreement agreement there and it'll work. There's, you know what? I'm going to like, it's funny. One of my colleagues where I work right now, every day before work brings along uh, his raspberry Pi, hooks it up to the television there. And we, we play retro games for about an hour. And then he unplugs it just before, you know, we open up to the public. It's a fun hour. I have to. I have to tell you that. But it it had me wondering a little bit more about Raspberry Pi now that I've uh, seen it more in action. Now, while my Super Nintendo Mini here sits here collecting dust, I I can get you uh, the Hatchy all you want and get those games on uh, there for you, Mike. If you want that, to well, make that happen. We can make that happen. No help problem. Help me look uh, look this up later on, okay, James? But. All those things like Hackchi, like for the mini systems and stuff like that, and even Raspberry Pi, like I can do it no problem. And some of us in the chat and probably any listening, some of us can do it, but it's not as simple as you think. Not everyone can do it. And there is a danger of losing and screwing up your system and bricking it. It's not hard. Like, I don't think it's hard. I don't feel any risk, but I could definitely see someone with low knowledge, bringing yeah, that, in stuff like that. Mean. And that's a more general public thing, which I can definitely it's see for, happening. I, I wouldn't trust myself to build one of these, but I would go online and buy a pre-made one. It just, just... That for the Raspberry Pi, I wouldn't build. I would buy, just like you, Jeff. Like, I'm not that <laughs> technically savvy. Like, I could do the software and all that stuff, but the building part is just... There is a alien. fascination with it, I admit. Having seen it in action, just a fascination, just to understand it a little more. But I think that Nintendo just doesn't care, though, because yeah, people can pirate things. Uh, people want to give Nintendo money. They, you know, they want to buy these old games. They'd love to own them, but you know, they they will settle for just put as much possible on your streaming service. Um, but I think. You know, Nintendo has their own way of doing things. Um, they have an archive. Whether the public gets an access to it, I don't think they necessarily care as much. Um, and they released a statement that the internet hated, basically saying, buy our new games. <laughs> um, yeah, like, it is in the <laughs> Nintendo vault, just like the uh, Disney vault. And if they're generous, they might uh, come back to us and... Even this generation with Switch, the reason there's not as much on the NSO for some of the virtual console games is some of the third parties 
decided to release some of their own retro collections on the Switch, Xbox One, PS4, and PS5, and PC. Like, you saw Konami doing it with all the Castlevania games, the Contra games. You saw Capcom doing it with the Mega Man games again, the Phoenix Wright games and stuff like that. Nintendo's credit. Nintendo's strategy seems to be, you have three months to buy the first Fire Emblem. Go, go, go. Okay, it's gone. Bye. And then, yeah, that's it. Well, I was going to say, there are some <laughs> other ones uh, of import. I mentioned Phoenix Wright and Phoenix Wright Dual Destinies and Phoenix Wright, uh, the Spirits one, the last game. Those are only digital only in the rest of the world. So if you want them, you got to download them off 3DS. Hopefully, maybe... They will work their way out uh, in a collection, stuff like that, along with uh, Apollo Justice, but time will tell. Weirdly enough, we got Great Attorney, remember? And that uh, is interesting how those things turn out. And there are other games, like the Pushmo games, they had one on Wii U and then three on 3DS. Those were interesting games. I'm not sure if they'll ever see the light of day again. We did see Box Boy on Switch, but there are the first free Box Boy games on 3DS. Those would be interesting to see, and all those ones are download only. So it's hard to say what'll happen. It's like uh, the Wii, the WiiWare games, and I'm thinking back to Konami, and they haven't released those uh, re Rebirth series for Konami, which had Contra, which had Gradius, which had Castlevania, and they haven't released them ever again so unless you would download them on there it's like they're just in the ether so to speak or in the vault i guess as we say right and a lot of these games for for wii and and ds and 3ds they won't work anymore because the the systems were designed over to about you know with two screens in mind or what they were designed with a specific motion control and you know the switch is getting around that like with skyward swords re-release but like i don't see a lot of the digital only ds and 3ds games you know surviving that easily like once those digital stores goes go down it's just whatever was released in physical media until nintendo decides to release another dual screen which may never happen and the other thing is for some jeff just to give you a warning you may need an update, like for example, Xenoblade Chronicles X. Oh, yeah. On the Wii U. <laughs> if you want to make it run better, you need this big update, and I have that download. But maybe that person later down the line, they have the game, but they don't have the actual way to do that update for their physical version. And that one, hopefully, it makes its way to Switch. But I'm just not sure because remember, uh, Monolith Soft, basically, they've been helping out with many games. But the games they've been focusing on, they did Xenoblade 2, Xenoblade Chronicles Remaster, and now we know they're doing uh, Xenoblade 3. So I'm not sure if X is in the cards, even though I would love it to be, because that was an interesting game, and it was more like hard sci-fi, so to speak. You know what I mean? Okay. So this is this is a cynical take, but I feel I kind of want to end on it. Um the thing is, I definitely feel for the collectors. I feel for the game preservation organizations. I definitely, you know, empathize with them and agree that these games should be preserved. But like, and I, I love Nintendo, as I've probably implied throughout this episode. And and past but episodes, that matters. I yeah. am, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I am currently um, a, a mortal human on Earth One. I'm not going to have time to play these games. I have other interests other than video games. Um, I care that these are going to be lost forever. But, you know, to Nintendo's point of, of not 
you know, putting a lot of effort into it, I'll get over it. Um, <laughs> and they gave us, and they gave us, as we said, ten years. So they gave us time to think about it and say, do we actually need this in our life? Do we need to actually buy said game? Right? Yeah. And not everyone's going to need to buy it, right? I loved playing Kid Icarus Uprising. In 30 years, if I'm alive, would I like to go back to it? Sure. But I'm sure there will be other games. Um, would you like so, to go back to Splatoon 1 and play uh, the single player? <laughs> probably not. I mean, I love I, Splatoon. but it's, it's crazy to go in there now because there's so many people that have done something to their system that is just wackiness. That's all well, I can say. You could get away with that. Like, you'd probably be banned from uh, the Switch if you used whatever those people were using. <laughs> so, I mean, further to your point, Jeff, and in playing on that Raspberry Pi for the last uh, couple weeks at work, it's pixelicious. And the thing is, you have to find, like, the right stuff. You got to find the right emulators. Some of them don't always work with certain games and stuff like that, depending on what you're looking at. And I look at arcade games and 64, sometimes Sega Saturn, especially Dreamcast. Like you have all these different emulators, but it still takes time to get them all right. But if you want the old ones, yeah, of course, uh, they've managed to make them work uh, to the best of their ability so that they're no yeah. problem. And when we say that, we're saying NES, we're saying PC Engine, SNES, Genesis, and so on and basically, so forth. And even Game Boy Advance zero. and Game so. Boy. And. Yeah, once you get into 3D, weird things can happen too. But the other thing was they had to deal with that before because remember when a lot of them were in cartridges, they had like extra things in the cartridge, yeah, right? To do it, either extra music or extra graphics or things like that. Nowadays, you don't have anything. They're not like bootstrapping things onto a CD or uh, a card, right? Uh, well, that, that was the case with uh, Star Fox and the FX chip back then, right? Long story. That's, that, that, mm -hmm. I think that's and, where we start. That's how you kind of start. And that's why everyone was really hyped about uh, the SNES Mini, because we hadn't seen those FX games. And then we were finally seeing it because they found a way, I guess, to emulate them to a certain quality, mm -hmm. right? Anyway, nice story. Wonder, uh, uh, since you mentioned Microsoft, I wonder if there will be that moment with Microsoft too. But, uh, we'll see, but I would say uh, that PlayStation is going to be the next well, we'll, uh, we'll, coin we'll, to drop. We'll I guess whenever that streaming service yeah, happens yeah. Uh, that they've been talking about, if that happens, I think that's the death knell for PS3, for Vita, and for PSP. Oh, well, for the stores, yes, and uh, and for the and for uh, yeah for in perpetuity down downloads. Well, in, in perpetuity is a relative, I guess. That's why I think when we mentioned them, right, it was interesting that they took that feedback and said, you know, we were going to do this, but we're going to hold back and do it for the fans, even though technically. They don't really probably care. They're going to shut down at some point. But Nintendo's always been together. They're like, well, fuck this. We're doing our thing. Here it goes. Yeah. Kevin, Mo, do you have a final thought on this? I know, I know uh, the three of us have the most on this, but I'm, and I know you have a bit of experience with this, Kevin. And I know you own a Switch. I've always been a handheld Nintendo person, so... This affects me more on the 3DS side. Mm. 
I now have to make some decisions because uh, I don't. Pl- I mostly just play Paycross on my 2DS XL <laughs> nowadays, but. Now I'm like, okay, do I do I pick up those online exclusive Phoenix Wright games? Uh, do I pick up the Shin Megami Tensei 4 DLC that I kept on putting off? And the crazy thing is they've been on sale before and that the only thing that hasn't is obviously, as you said, that DLC, right? Yeah, that thing is never going on sale at that point. So I might cave and get that. And I guess uh, you've already gotten the Fire Emblem stuff you want, right? And I know they've had DLC before sometimes. Uh, I, I couldn't really... I, Honestly, with Fire Emblem, I I just never really got that far in it. Like, I played a little bit of Awakening, and that was really it. Yeah. I, uh, huh. You know, it's, it's interesting with the whole functionality thing with some games, because some things that come to mind is, like, Phantom Hourglass, where you had to close the screen and i remember being stuck on that for hours because i'm like how the hell do you get past this and i remember just turning the you know closing the the console and going to eat dinner and then i and then i open and i'm like wait i can get through now or i think of 999 where yeah uh, mm. the the end part of the game uh incorporates the dual screen, but then they had to, and that's one of the integral things that they had to edit out or alter. Yeah, of all the other in, versions, uh, unfortunately. Other yeah. Versions. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then. Yeah, uh, I guess. Or like, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I don't, I don't know. It's just. And then there's it was coming. the virtual console stuff as well. If you like any old stuff and some of them are cheaper than others, as they say, they sold, uh, the Pokemon games, uh, blue and red. Uh, the other two after that, I think it was pearl and uh, gold and that. They had all those ones were only on 3DS that they did a VC release, but they're more expensive than the other ones. And then they had other ones like uh, Game Gear VC oh, wow. games okay. on there, which was interesting. And those were done by M2, so the quality of them is good, but depending on if you really want to play any of them is another question. Yeah. And then they, they had other exclusives like Mysterious Castle Murasame. The only way to play that game legally was downloading from the 3DS, the mm-hmm. VC release of that. And they had a shoot 'em up uh, Summer Carnival, I think it was 91 or whatever, which was the shooter from uh, Japan shoot 'em up that probably pushed the NES to its limits, to say the anyway. least. Like, the flickering on that is ridiculous. Anyway. Yeah, like, Phoenix Wright, I, I'm holding out for a physical release. Like, I know I know that happened I don't, in Japan. I don't I think so, but I hope they can maybe do what they've done with the others and do um, a compilation, right? And release yeah, that's. I think they can do that, though. I, that's what I'm holding trilogy, out for. Right? That's what I'm holding out for. Uh... You can finally cross-examine a whale, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's, you know, honestly, not surprising to hear Nintendo's doing this. Uh, They've they've done this time and again, as what uh, you guys have already alluded to. And they know that, you know, us suckers will just rebuy them again. Almost certainly that's sort of how a lot of entertainment works. 
You say that for to some degree with movies as well. Yeah, like there there's rumblings that they're gonna do uh well this is not Nintendo, but there are rumors that they probably will re release P four at some point, Persona four. Well they're doing the celebration, right? So they talked about a lot of other things, so we'll see how that all plays out. And, and then I know there's a, a countdown for uh, Soul Hackers, right? So that'll be funny to see if anything new happens on that series. And that was on 3DS, the first yes. time that ever came over. Yeah. Persona and, Soul Hackers. And you know what? It's like, does that mean that I'll buy Persona 4 for the third time? You bet I will. And I didn't even finish New Game Plus on the PS2. Well, that's that's. Did you even finish the Vita version? Did you finish Gold? I, you know what? I. I never bought a Vita, so I, I cashed in on my physical copy of P4 Golden when it went up in value like years ago. Well, the good thing is probably Golden will be the version, so it'll yeah. work out for you, Kevin. It makes That's sense. That's like me and uh, Kimmy Orange Road or a lot of Star Wars fans out there. Anyway. Well, that's, uh, well we've said a lot already tonight, haven't we? <laughs> you know what, though? Before we end tonight, oh, uh, Mo, do you have a thought? I, 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 Kevin gave a thought, but Mo, I, I never gave a thought. Uh, no, really? no. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, it's not really on the video game side, but the movie stuff. We gotta talk about that. You don't game on you don't game on Nintendo consoles, do you, Mo? Uh, I think the last Nintendo console I had was a 3DS. It's mm-hmm. like in a drawer somewhere. <laughs> it's I don't in know, a drawer. It's... Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, the thing is, and I guess we can talk another time, maybe off, 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 uh, Mike about you know about uh, consoles and stuff. I mean, we've had this discussion about okay, where's the console world going in terms of video games, and I guess we'll reopen that and revisit that at some other point. I mean, we all we all obviously know the answer to that question, Mike. It's going to the metaverse. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well. As they say, as they say, Mo, all of them are going to the metaverse, and then Nintendo goes to the beat of its own drum, and will do whatever or, or the fuck it wants. Basic. I mean, Nintendo's going to become the, uh, the the beta to the VHS man. It's got to join us. Well, it's either well, it's one of those. They'll either go to the metaverse, or they'll be bought out by Disney. Some of the reason people we still love them, even though for Nintendo is they still deliver the smiles, and that's what they always say is. They wanted to deliver a smile on every face, and usually they do. And usually it's through the gameplay where I'm playing it, I can get out of the drudgery of my regular 9 to Mm -hmm. 5, right? And then just play this and be immersed in this world and going around the controls and that feel fluid and fun, and I can do different things. And most of the time, I'll put a smile on my face and say, you know what, I'm really enjoying this, and then I can keep coming back to it, right? And it doesn't have to look the most fantastic piece of art in 4k and 120 frames per second or ray tracing and all this other shit right that's nintendo's quirk we've had this discussion before okay and as we said the quirk is sometimes the hard thing because if you have a quirk for other each system right how are you going to then transfer that to the next system yeah yeah we can go on and on but we've already gone on for more than two hours so what was on the calendar, Mike, the community calendar? Oh, yeah. Well, before we go tonight, let's take a look at the anime community calendar because we haven't in a little while. Hey, movie fans, especially you in the States. 
The Japan Film Festival Plus is ongoing. It did start last week. It is ongoing, as I mentioned, until February 27th. Check it out. It is free. You just have to set up an account. You lucky Americans. This ain't in Canada. I think there were some other countries too, right, really? uh, Mike? Oh, yeah. A bunch of other places. I just know Canada ain't one of them. You lucky, you, uh, you lucky people. Don't we get a, a release later? Like, I point, feel like we this yeah, did, which happened last where, year, but it, there, it doesn't seem like that's on the horizon this year. And I, but I did look at the list of movies. I will admit, none of them, uh, just by title, really piqued my curiosity. But knowing that I would have had the chance, I probably would have perused more than a few. Nonetheless. As I said, the uh, JFF Plus runs until the 27th. And a little closer to home, a quick reminder, this episode I know for sure will go up before then. I'm very sure, unlike the uh, show notes for last episode. I've got to do that fully. I've got to do a Twitter. I've got to do the Twitter uh, mention of episode 61 just for reference. But that all said... A quick reminder if uh, for all you Anime North fans, panel submissions and hotel reservations for the 2022 edition, which will take place on, from July 15th to 17th, those will begin on March 1st, which I'm pretty sure this episode will be up well before March 1st. So get your preparations in and be on guard for when those begin because especially with hotel reservations and if it goes the way we think it will go and it'll go reasonably i say even with all the uh covid concerns the hotel is likely to go fast and for what it's worth i in my mind already have a panel idea i'll share it with the others after we go off the air but uh just some thoughts and some things of note in the anime community calendar. Anyway, that's almost it. Any, you guys have any anything to add before we go tonight? I'm wishing the uh, the queen a speedy oh, yeah, recovery. Right. I know she's yeah. falling, I know she's falling out of times over there, but you know, hopefully yeah, it came down this morning. She has COVID. Probably got it from uh, Charles. I'm pretty sure she got it from Justin Bieber because he got it too. So you know, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Justin Bieber got COVID, and now he's canceling a bunch of shows. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, well, I'm sure uh, Mo, that the Queen, will uh, definitely uh, get over it, and I'm sure she's been through she- many harder things, as we know, talking about uh, Philip uh, last year and then of course uh, i think another one remember when uh, her home burned down at windsor castle in the early 90s so she's had worse that's, years that's before we get into the war anyway speedy recovery there so that's all we have for tonight first time watching or listening once again anime roundtable at gmail.com at anime roundtable anime roundtable.com and don't forget we're also on twitch Twitch.tv slash Anime Roundtable and on YouTube with, uh, well, we do have to add stuff, but stay tuned there, of course. And don't forget, going back to the podcast, 
please give us a review wherever you're enjoying this, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. Because good reviews will always help us and hopefully nab us more listeners. How good should we have our review, Kevin? We would greatly appreciate five-star reviews. All of them. Or at least be honest. Be brutally honest. And uh, if you listen to us with any sort of regularity, please, yeah, please give us that five-star review. It would really help us out. Yeah, anything, really. You know who you are. Both of you. No, it's like probably like six or seven, I imagine. Hey, closer to double digits. (laughs) The intention is to typically do episodes every week or provide something every week. So we will try and add new stuff on a rather consistent basis on all our platforms. So hit the subscribe or follow button on every platform we're on so you can be notified whenever we add something new there for your enjoyment. The theme song is entitled Fubuki Snowstorm by Piko Misaki, which is the title track of her latest album. You can check out her music at PicoInfinity.com or on her Facebook page at Pico Zen Music. So until next time, thanks for listening. Good night from Toronto. And join us again for another edition of the Anime Roundtable. a while since we've done a two-hour show hasn't it <laughs> i i yeah, remember that, that was longer than i thought well uh, yeah, it, it, i think i mentioned the one thing is remember i mentioned like we probably should update the one thing we had said last time about anime uh on youtube remember oh yeah we never really got back to that discussion did we Oh. Yeah, I can get back to it the next week. But well, yeah, we will. actually kind of changed the game, so to speak. This is the problem of uh, having two ep- two weeks between in between episodes. Damn Olympics.